From India's largest newsroom, I'm Meenal Baghel and this is the Times of India podcast. If we put aside the myth-making of modernity in which humans are triumphantly free of material dependence on the planet and acknowledge the reality of our ever-increasing servitude to the products of the earth, then the story of the Bandhanis no longer seems so distant from our present predicament. To the contrary, the continuities between the two are so pressing and powerful that it could even be said that the fate of the Bandha Islands might be read as a template for the present, if only we knew how to tell that story. What possible bearing could something as cheap and insignificant as nutmeg have on the 21st century? In his new book, The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis, Amitav Ghosh goes back to 1621 when the Dutch East India Company sent in soldiers to decimate the inhabitants of Banda, one of the famed spice islands of what is today Indonesia. The islands were the only source of nutmeg in the world at that time and the massacre marked a moment when European traders became colonialists in a bid to control the valuable spice trade between Asia and Europe. He uses the violent but little-known history of the nutmeg to reflect on contemporary crisis connecting everything from the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement to the migration crisis and climate change. Part story, part polemic, Ghosh's book ranges across centuries and continents and across the disciplines of history, economics and science to show how geopolitics and empire, not just capitalism and technology, have brought us to the current moment of planetary reckoning. What is needed now, Ghosh argues, is a new vitalist politics, one that places the Earth's non-human protagonists front and centre, he talks about all this and more with my colleague Vaishnavi Chandrasekhar. You wrote this book in the middle of a global pandemic. How did that yes. context, both personally and in the larger sense, shape your thinking while you were writing? Well, I realized very early on that, uh, you know, in fact, like many, many other people also, that in fact, this pandemic is not something separate from the planetary crisis. It's very much an aspect of the planetary crisis, you know. And, uh, you know, in a way, it's just the beginning, uh, really, uh, when the planetary crisis just breaks through to people. Uh, because uh, uh, we can see that it's, uh, you know, it arises out of these uh, forms of acceleration that have also given us a uh, climate change. So, in a way, you know, it really brought together everything that I've been thinking about for a long time, you know, the, uh, when I was writing The Great Derangement and Gun Island and so on. So, uh, you know, thinking about all of this, uh, you know, it lent a sort of incredible uh, urgency to my writing, uh, you know, to uh, what I was doing. And in a way, uh, uh, because of the lockdowns, because of the pandemic, I suddenly had uh, a sort of time span when I uh, could uh, really achieve the kind of deep focus uh, that hasn't been possible for a while, you know, because I have to travel a lot and so many other commitments and so on. But suddenly everything went quiet. I had this period of deep focus when I could just focus on the writing. 
And I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And in a way, it kept me sane as well, I think. And it kept me, um, you know, it, it just kept me grounded through the whole through the whole pandemic. Because you have to remember that I was uh, in New York through all of this. And New York was the epicenter of the epicenter, you know. Right. Uh, where we, it was, it's really hard to describe to you the, the atmosphere in New York in March and April. Though, of course, you will understand it because that same atmosphere came to be in Delhi uh, about a year later. Yeah. What do you think the pandemic sort of tells us um, about the larger climate crisis to come? What lessons do you think it has? One of the interesting things um, that you talk about in the book is how even rich countries fared poorly in this pandemic. And in fact, some not so advanced economies did okay. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Vietnam has been a stellar performer, you know, through this whole thing. You know, I think uh, the pandemic really does offer us many kinds of uh, indicators for how uh, the impacts of climate change are going to play out. You know, the standard narrative about climate change impacts is that, uh, you know, the uh, the rich will be okay and, the, and, and the, you know, the poor will be devastated. And while there's a lot of truth to that, I think the actual... Uh, the actual situation will be much more nuanced and much more complicated. I think what we see through the pandemic really is that there are two there are two factors which are absolutely vital. One of those is uh, uh, social trust, and the other is inequality. And that is exactly what has made America so vulnerable, because you know. America came up with these uh, um, with the vaccines very early, and they started vaccinating very early, and then suddenly it just stalled. Why? It was because of a, a complete absence of social trust. Uh, it's this incredible social, social and political divisiveness that has come into being in America uh, that has proved to be an incredible hurdle. Uh, whereas in Vietnam and in uh, Portugal, which has now, uh, uh, you know, achieved, I think, something like 85% of the population is vaccinated and everything is back to normal. So, you know, uh, if you look at the countries that have in uh, many ways fared the worst, almost all of them are countries where there's a, a deep political polarization, profound social inequality, and uh, an absence of social trust. And these countries are basically the United States, India, Brazil. Uh, these countries are really have been uh, completely devastated. And I think <clears throat> it bodes very ill for the future, you know, because as climate change is going to uh, play out, we are going to see that, uh, you know, uh, these fundamental factors in the background are going to be, are going to pose insuperable problems. Does I'm anything... sorry, this is not, this is not, I'm not, uh, this is a rather dire point of view, but I, I think <laughs> you can see that it's uh, not unfounded. Your previous nonfiction book was about the contemporary crisis of climate change. And a lot of your recent fiction has been set in the colonial era in countries around the Indian Ocean. And your new book sort of seems to bring all this together. What first drew you to the story of the nutmeg trade in 16th century Indonesia? Well, 
Uh, you know, I've been writing about the Indian Ocean for a very long time. I mean, more or less all my books, uh, you know, are about uh, this stretch of water around the Indian Ocean. So uh, I've always known about the importance of the <clears throat> of the spice trade and the spice islands and so on. Uh, so I always wanted to visit, uh, but you know, uh, visiting Maluku as this uh, you know the spice island uh, uh, province is now called. Uh, it's a part of Indonesia, of course, uh, but visiting that area was not even really possible uh, for a long time because it was like, you know, a disturbed area, like, uh, you know, uh, what are called disturbed areas in India. Uh, but um, uh, in 2016, the, uh, the, the Indonesian government, uh, you know, the, the Ministry of Culture and so on, uh, invited me to visit. So I said I would visit if I could go to the Spice Islands. Uh, so they uh, they organized it. And I went, uh, you know, uh, to Banda, uh, and uh, I traveled across Maluku. And the more I learned about uh, uh, about what had happened there, uh, the more interested I became. I mean, I, I felt that this is a history that is perhaps uh, not adequately known. And again, you know, it helped me tie together a lot of different ideas uh, that had already been in my head for a long time. Why did you call it the nutmeg's curse? Well, because, uh, you know, what happened is that uh, in the uh, in Banda, the presence of this amazing tree, which had made the people rich and prosperous for millennia, ultimately led to their absolute uh, uh, destruction. You know, I mean, they were just uh, completely exterminated, really, in the most ghastly way. So what you uh, what uh, the Banda Islands uh, really represents, in a sense, is I think a very early example of what we now call the resource curse, you know, and in a sense I think that is exactly what uh, uh, the planetary crisis of today is, you know, the whole the whole Earth has become subjected to the resource curse. Uh, in a sense, what we are seeing today is that we have been. Uh, exploiting and expropriating from the earth for so so long that in fact today uh, the entire earth has become subjected to this uh, to this curse, if you like. Yeah, most of us, you know, associate the roots of the climate crisis today to the industrial revolution, which gave us the technology to burn fossil fuels at scale, and um, to the system of capitalism that followed. But your book makes the case that the roots actually go further back to European colonialism and especially to the conquest of indigenous people and landscapes in North America, as well as Asia, in islands like the Banda Islands. What do you think made colonial conquest different from earlier conquests, say something like the Roman Empire? The conquest of the Americas uh, by, uh, by Europeans in the uh, basically in the 16th century is actually completely without precedent uh, in human history. You know, uh, there's absolutely nothing like it, uh, you know, before or since. I mean, Adam Smith quite rightly said that the discovery of the Americas was the most important thing that ever happened to humanity. And I think he was right because it is completely exceptional, completely unlike anything that had ever happened simply because uh, you know, the Roman Empire or, or Genghis Khan or whoever uh, never conquered a place and then, uh, you know, 
basically eliminated uh, uh, you know 80 to 90 percent of the population which is what happened in uh, in the americas i mean it's something completely unheard of it's not it had never before happened in human history and i think the unprecedented savagery and violence of that uh, you know of the conquest of the americas really made possible the you know the savagery that also unfolded in the banda islands you know uh because uh, you know before that i just don't think that human beings would have thought okay uh, you know there's there's some people out there growing something uh, let's just go there and kill all the people and take uh, you know uh, uh, take i uh, take whatever it is that they were growing because they actually never did that uh, you know i mean people uh knew about the banda islands uh merchants went from all across the indian ocean they went from india they went from arabia they went from china but they never thought to themselves okay come on uh, let's just kill all these people and grab their um, grab their trees you know what's even stranger really is that they never even thought of taking away the seeds of the trees and bringing them back to their own countries and growing them there i mean we know that uh, you know nutmegs can grow very well in india they can grow very well in africa and in many other places uh but people never actually did that uh, instead they made that very long journey because in a sense you know what was so important uh about nutmegs uh before uh, was that they grew in the bandas so unless they grew there they weren't really nutmegs uh, you might say just like we say you know like in uh, you know there are all kinds of products that we have in india which we associate with the place so you could you could take away an alfonso for example and an alfonso tree and grow it somewhere else but it wouldn't be the true alfonso because the true alfonso comes from ratnagiri and goa you know so it's in that sense that uh, you know there was in human history an association between people places and things and that's what came to be completely severed in this period that is what opens up the path uh, for this sort of uh, absolutely reckless if you like uh, expropriation of the earth but let me also go back to the earlier part of your question where you talked about the industrial revolution you know the standard narrative of the industrial revolution uh is that you know it happens in the late century uh, late 18th century you have you have these lone geniuses who come up with these uh, technological breakthroughs but uh, the historian priya satya who's at stanford uh, she is uh, actually of indian origin uh, she has written a really brilliant book called uh, i mean she's not the only one but her book is perhaps the most uh, important of its kind uh, where she shows that in fact uh, the roots of the industrial revolution lie entirely within britain's armament in, uh, industry you know hmm. of the 16th and 17th centuries uh, armaments were in a way britain's most important industry and why was that it was because britain was basically fighting all these colonial wars uh, on the one hand in the americas and on the other hand in asia so uh, even the industrial revolution really absolutely has its roots in uh, in, in colonialism I think you used the term um the first time I've seen it anyway um omnicide what do you mean by that it's to kill everything 
Uh, you know, and that's uh, that's in fact one of the things about uh, it's one of the things about uh, colonialism. I mean, uh, you know, Columbus uh, on his first on his first voyage didn't uh, uh, didn't uh, you know go on these murderous uh, rampages, but on his second voyage, I mean, he was just uh, uh, killing everything in sight. It didn't matter what it was, and that's what we see. You know, I mean, uh, we see increasingly. And that is what it really is. You, you, you want to exterminate everything that is around you. And in a way, you know, uh, that's what's uh, expressed in, uh, in Conrad's Heart of Darkness, uh, you know, exterminate all the groups uh, is the line that he gives, uh, yeah. you know. But uh, when he says all the groups, uh, usually we assume that um, he's speaking about humans. But that's not the case. I mean, it's quite clear that uh, really what they want to uh, exterminate is the landscape itself. So you suggest that European colonialists, they placed humans and especially white people at the apex of creation and, and perceived the earth as a resource to be exploited or exterminated, as you put it. And by contrast, indigenous cultures saw the land uh, as a living entity uh, and themselves as part of a web of life. Now, countries like India, which have traditionally had a more spiritual view of the natural world, could have followed a different path of development um, after independence anyway, one that was more sustainable. Why do you think that didn't happen? It was colonialism, really, that uh, fundamentally was the break. Uh, <clears throat> it was once uh, Europeans started their adventures uh, in, uh, in the North Americas that they brought back that violence, uh, in fact, uh, to Europe as well, and started exterminating large numbers of Europeans, you know, uh, witches, uh, especially women, they directed their violence uh, uh, very much against women, you know. So it's, uh, you know, we have to recognize that it's not just that, I mean, that's the sense in which, you know, this colonialism was a rupture, uh, really, uh, uh, in the history of the earth. So in India, uh, you know, yes, we did have a very different uh, uh, a way of looking at the earth. And I think that's really sort of in the modern period. Uh, uh, that's really incarnated. That view is really incarnated in Mahatma Gandhi, you know. Right. And uh, Mahatma Gandhi uh, wanted a completely different uh, uh, model of, uh, of economy and development for India. But as we know, uh, you know, by the 1970s, 1980s, the entire Gandhian model came to be overthrown. And uh, this is largely also, uh, you know, an outcome of um, uh, the Cold War and the way the Cold War ended. I mean, what is the Washington consensus? The Washington consensus was essentially uh, pushing a colonialist, extractivist kind of economy upon the whole of the earth and saying, this is how you must live. This is the only way to live. This is the best way to live. And, uh, you know, at this point, I think uh, Indians, Indonesians, Chinese, uh, we have adopted this colonial model, uh, this colonial extractivist model uh, have, with uh, just uh, unbridled enthusiasm, if you like. And I think in a way, that's the saddest aspect of it, that, you know, all our ancient history, all our ancient uh, uh, civilization, culture, all of that we've just thrown by the wayside uh, to actually what is going to uh, be spell our own doom. One thing that really interested me in your book was the way in which you spoke about science. Um, in both the climate crisis and in the current pandemic, 
we've seen people seemingly reject science, um, for example, anti-vaxxers or climate change deniers. And many experts and scientists would say we need to inculcate a more scientific temperament in people. Yet you suggest that modern science has been or can be part of the problem. It has been. Of course, it has been in the past. Look, I don't think anything, whether it's science or rationality or, or rationalism or spiritualism, should get a free pass. You know, we know from experience that every kind of um, um, ideological apparatus uh, has good aspects and can have terribly destructive aspects. So we know that science has often, I mean, look, until what, even the 1960s, uh, uh, eugenics uh, was accepted science. I mean, you know, this eugenics, which was a, a sort of uh, a fundamentally fascist idea. And, uh, you know, across uh, America, for example, so many policies were founded on eugenics, uh, including the immigration policies and so on. And, uh, you know, the, uh, in, in a very real sense, uh, America is still paying for, the, uh, for those legacies of science. Similarly, we also know that science has almost always produced outcomes that uh, favor the wealthy and the powerful. Uh, this is... This is almost always the case with every new uh, technology that um, uh, that arrives. So, yes, I think we must, uh, of course, uh, uh, <clears throat> we must, of course, uh, follow the science when necessary. But we must equally uh, reserve our right to be critical of it. So, when in fact science and technology increasingly press uh, push for geoengineering. We have to look at it critically and see that this is something that is going to be catastrophic, uh, especially uh, for countries like India and the countries of the Indian Ocean, because uh, most of the geoengineering solutions that are being proposed today are likely to mess up the, uh, the monsoons, which will uh, completely and utterly destroy, uh, you know, I mean, just imagine if the, mon uh, the monsoons are already uh, changing, and if they change even further, just imagine the impact on poor people in India you know, who rely upon the monsoons for their rain-fed agriculture. So, yes, I mean, you know, uh, just uh, we should accept and understand uh, climate science when it tells us that this is, uh, that, uh, you know, climate change is a reality because, in fact, we can see that even without the science. You know, you go and talk to uh, poor farmers anywhere in the world, as I have, and they know that, uh, you know, they don't need science necessarily to tell them that. You know, the science, of, of course, is it, uh, is amazing. It's wonderful. It, it shows us, uh, you know, the mechanisms by through which uh, climate change is occurring. But uh, we should know that there are people everywhere in the world uh, who are perfectly well aware, even without the science, even without being educated, they know that this is happening in the world, you know, because it's happening in front of our eyes. Uh, so, you know, I think in relation to all these things, we have to employ our critical faculties. And I would certainly say that, uh, you know, uh, in relation to solutions, in relation to understanding how uh, we can uh, make ground level changes, we need to pay attention actually uh, to the people who live on the ground, you know, who are often forest peoples, indigenous peoples, farmers, and so on. How do you see this uh, playing out in the Indian Ocean region? In the book, you say uh, this is you know, the chief theater of the planetary crisis is likely to be the Indian Ocean region. Um, why do you think that? 
See, the Indian Ocean uh, historically has been the crossroads of the world. You know, I mean, the two most productive regions uh, of the Indian um, of the world were, uh, you know, what is now China and what is now India. I mean, uh, between them, they accounted for like fifty percent of global trade. And we see that same situation coming into being again. And the reason for this is largely population. Uh, you know, I mean, so much of the world's population is actually concentrated around the Indian Ocean. But I think that's what we see now, you know, uh, it's perfectly clear. I mean, most of the world's uh, truly debilitating, uh, devastating conflicts are in this region. Most of the world's uh, um, energy reserves uh, are in this region. Uh, and we can see that, the uh, you know, the geopolitical maneuvering now is very much focused on the Indian Ocean. Uh, you know, uh, through the 19th century, through the uh, through the 19th century, the Atlantic became for a while uh, the main waterway of the world. But now I think we're uh, we are reverting to the historic norm, and the Indian Ocean is again uh, becoming the most important uh, uh, region of the world in that way. And it's a very volatile, very frightening situation because, uh, as you can see, you know the, the geopolitical maneuvering between. India, China, Pakistan, uh, and of course also Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, is, uh, is going to profoundly destabilize the world. And we can see also that the United States is becoming more and more involved in the, in, in the Indian Ocean. Uh, it's creating more and more bases, moving more and more troops into the Indian Ocean. So this, uh, you know, uh, uh, what can I say? I think long before climate change, uh, you know, it's these geopolitical maneuverings uh, that are going to uh, really uh, destabilize the world that we're in. Does anything give you hope for our planetary future? What do you see as the way forward? I think, uh, you know, I, I try and take, uh, take heart from, uh, you know, the movements that young people are starting. I think that's a very welcome direction. I think the fact that people are becoming more and more aware of the issues that face us is also something to take uh, to take heart from. But at the same time, you know, it really does uh, discourage me that uh, uh, in the West, especially, people seem to not understand uh, the ways in which uh, you know the planetary crisis and uh, the, uh, just the, ge the the geography of it. You know, the fact that it's in the uh, so that the Indian Ocean has become uh, really the chief theater and how volatile that actually makes the world today. Today's episode is produced by Arun George, Jairad Singh and Sunai Marathi. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We are available on TUI+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, reach us at tuipodcasts at timesinternet.in.